Uh, tēnā koutou katoa. Kia ora, welcome everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to introduce you to this New Zealand-focused webinar and thank you, Jeremy, very, very much uh, for presenting to us today on the Royal Commission of Inquiry. Um, as you may be aware, Jeremy is barrister at Bankside Chambers. Uh, he's a UC graduate of law and he also has first-class master's degree from Cambridge University. Uh, Jeremy provides advice to the Anglican Church of Aotearoa and Polynesia and serves on the board of Christ College. So uh, we're really thrilled to have you here with us today, Jeremy. Um, for my part, uh, as you know, I'm New Zealand chapter president uh, for Educate Plus. I'm also uh, on the staff at UC and work in a major gifts role. And um, I believe this inquiry is incredibly uh, critical and important. And uh, like you, want to know more about the process and how we as advancement practitioners uh, can support those who have been impacted and how our institutions and organisations um, can best support the process in the, in the best possible way. So um, without further ado, Jeremy, I'll hand over to you and thank you again very much. Thank you, uh, Naomi, and good morning, everyone. Thank you for taking the time um, to hear about the work of the Commission. Uh, which, as you would have may well have heard over the past few weeks, is well and truly into its work, uh, with its having started conducting public hearings, uh, only the second lot of public hearings, in fact, uh, specifically focused on issues of redress in relation to state institutions. Um, some very technical or defined terms for the purposes of the Commission, which I'll come back to shortly. Um, as Naomi said, uh, because of my role within the Anglican Church, and also as well my role as uh, a member of the Christ College Board of Governors. I'm very much involved in the work of the Commission, uh, particularly uh, acting for the Anglican Church, as a result of which I bring a kind of a private sector as opposed to a public sector view as to what is going on. Um, because one of the anomalies that we'll talk about shortly is that although schools are very much captured in terms of the definition of faith-based institutions, uh, there hasn't been as much of a focus on schools in terms of the state institutions. Uh, so for certainly for public schools within New Zealand, they haven't been subject to the same level of scrutiny that the uh, private schools almost certainly will be, and indeed have already if you've seen the, the uh, recent news about Dilworth. So in terms of the presentation today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Commission itself and why schools are involved, then talk about the process involving a discussion around the timeline and exactly what the Commission has been doing. It has been underway really for about two years already, uh, and it's now, as I said, moved into its second lot of public hearings, but it's been doing a number of private sessions as well, which we'll talk about. Uh, I'll then talk a little bit about um, the government response to it, so the kind of expectations that government has set which no doubt will help also set the expectations for whatever legisl legislative response might come out of this process. I'll then discuss the learnings from Australia. There's some really interesting facts that we've discovered from the Australian Commission itself, uh, which are highly relevant to New Zealand, and probably give us an idea, I suspect, of where the Commission might end up in the end. Um, I'll talk about the expected response to allegations of historical contemporary abuse with some ideas for institutions as to how they can respond before moving on to redress issues. And the redress issues are very much in focus at the moment. It is the first lot of hearings the Commission are now doing. And it's also perhaps a, a tricky area. And in a sense, um, particularly for uh, people working with an advancement within schools, uh, the issue of redress is where the rubber might hit the road in a little bit. 
uh, in that the question of how you handle claims, the public response to them, and the financial consequences uh, all flow into the work of advancement and development officers in a number of ways, uh, both in terms, obviously, of your relationship with your communities and how your communities feel toward the institution, but also in terms of the practical realities as to both the ability of the institution to raise money and its need to raise money if it has to pay out significant sums in tangible support. Uh, and then at the end, as well as throughout, actually, I'm happy to take any questions uh, in relation to um, the Commission. So the Commission itself and why schools are involved. So the Royal Commission is investigating the abuse and neglect of children, young people and vulnerable adults, and I'll come back to these definitions shortly, who are in the care of state and faith-based institutions in New Zealand between 1950 and 1999. This arose out of a promise that the Labour Party made at the last election to inquire into and have a commission inquire into the care of children, young people and the vulnerable within state-based institutions. Uh, Post-election, there was considerable lobbying, particularly by the Roman Catholic Church, uh, as well as the Anglican Church, asking for the terms of the commission to be extended to be a bit closer to what happened in Australia. So uh, within Australia, um, their commission included both the state and the faith-based institutions. The original approach in New Zealand, as I said, was to look at state-based institutions, but thanks to the lobbying by the churches, it was expanded to cover faith-based institutions as well. This was um, uh, an honest acknowledgement by the church that it knew it had issues, but it was also a recognition of the important role that faith-based institutions have played within New Zealand. Because, of course, until the real development of the welfare state from the 1930s on, it was primarily faith-based institutions that were providing social services. Uh, obviously, there's been you know, Christian schools and faith-based schools throughout New Zealand since its very early days. But we forget that there were orphanages run by private faith-based institutions, many of which were still going well into the 1980s. You also had um, homes for unwedded women um, and for, uh, we were perhaps in a, today this is not the way we describe it at all but homes for fallen women as well uh, which again ran probably much later than most people would have thought and then of course they had hostels and boarding homes for those who came from difficult family backgrounds so the reality is that faith-based institutions used to provide care uh, in a very meaningful way in a very direct way of course faith-based institutions carry on their work um, and in particular working with the underprivileged and working within a social services space, but actually with less direct provision of care in the sense of actually running homes where people come and stay. Um, a few do, but the provision of that service has been restricted greatly. So the reason faith-based institutions have been included is because they did play a very important role throughout New Zealand's social history of providing care and support to people who needed it, and in actually providing care in the sense of not just, you know, come to school and be taught and looked after, but also in terms of running homes and hostels. So the purpose of the Royal Commission is to really look into where systems have failed to protect children. So the primary inquiry, although we haven't got there yet, is to see how it is that abuse happened, how widespread it was, and to make recommendations on how to improve laws, policies, and practices. The current focus of the Commission and the current part of its work is looking at issues of redress. And in particular, what are the systemic issues that are stopping people from receiving redress from institutions where they claim they have been abused. Uh, so we will be spending quite a bit of time on that today, as I said. Uh, the Royal Commission has a number of POWAR principles that it is guided by. It's looking at issues of voice, the circumstances of going into care, nature and extent of abuse, the impact of abuse. 
people do respond differently. And if you haven't listened at all to some of the testimony uh, in the recent, in the current hearing in relation to state-based institutions, the impact of abuse on people at a young age can be horrific. Uh, you look at the systemic factors. What is it that led people to be abused? Was it about the institutions themselves? Was it about their policies? Was it in fact a general societal problem? We have the issue of redress and rehabilitation. And then of course there's issues of uh, the Treaty of Waitangi and exactly how institutions incorporate the principles of the treaty, both into their care, uh, but also into their response to claims. And this is actually quite an important issue in the sense that it's almost certain that when you come to consider abuse, and the definition of abuse is quite broad. So the definition uh, covers not just sexual abuse, although a lot of the focus is on serious sexual and physical abuse, but the definition actually covers any form of physical or psychological or emotional abuse that has a significant effect. And to my mind, at least, that would certainly cover um, a cultural oppression. Uh, so if you spoke uh, native, if you spoke, say, Maori or a Pacific language, and then you were told you could not speak that language within the care home or within your school at all, uh, and that no doubt would in fact have considerable lasting psychological and emotional effects, then that is a form of abuse that is covered by the work of this commission. So issues of the way in which uh, certainly New Zealand culture is a Pākehā dominant culture through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and really into the 90s and now in many ways, um, has treated minority cultures uh, and uh, our tangata whenua within our care institutions is going to be a very live issue before the Commission as well. So I'll touch now, we've got in the care of faith-based institutions defined on the screen. So this is where there was a slight difference between the state and faith-based institutions, because it is clear that faith-based institutions uh, is where you have a faith-based institution, that's a very broad term. Uh, so it includes obviously the Anglican Church institutions, Roman Catholic institutions, Salvation Army institutions, where they have assumed responsibility for the care of an individual, including faith-based schools. So the critical thing here is this definition of care of an individual. And I said earlier, we have these particular terms, children, young people, and vulnerable adults. So what we mean is anybody under 18 is effectively covered by the work of the Commission. And for vulnerable adults, we're talking about people who have effectively a recognised disability. Uh, so if people are being cared for within a home because they have a mental uh, or physical incapacity, then they are also covered by the work of this Commission. Uh, in any event, whether you are covered by this Commission or not, all schools and educational institutions can learn from the process and findings that will emerge. Uh, because it's hard to say that any institution will have these issues absolutely right. Uh, the reason for that is because there are significant things to learn from our past that we have still not fully engaged with, and also because this is a very complex, complex area where there are a number of uh, effectively different uh, principles at play, some of which compete with each other, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about redress. Um, a final word is that when it comes to university halls of residence, and I'll mention this um, given Naomi uh, has her delightful UC background on, um, is halls of residence within universities are prima facie excluded from the work of the commission. And the reason for that is because they did not generally care for young people and vulnerable adults. The people within them were of age, and of course, unless they had a particular type of disability, then they are not in fact covered by the work of the commission. So that's a summary of the broad sweep of the Commission in its terms of reference. It's a very long period of time, 1950 to 1999, 
And in fact, the remit of the, of the Commission extends further, as I'll talk about in a moment, when it comes to the document requests that have been issued by it. So what's been the timeline? Um, as with all commissions, these things move perhaps slower than people would like. Um, that, I think, is unfortunately just, just life. Um, and in fact, the Australian experience was, I think it ran about three years longer than it was originally intended to, just because of the volume of material that came in that it wasn't properly resourced to deal with. So with the timeline, uh, it was established in February 2018 with the draft terms of reference. The terms of reference were finalised in November, which is when faith-based institutions were brought in, and the initial commissioners were appointed. The commissioners began their work in January 2019, and they had some initial meetings in February. In March 2019, a preservation of documents notice was issued, requiring everyone subject to the terms of reference to preserve all documents and not destroy any. Uh, policies were then developed in April 2019, and in May 2019, members of the survivory group were announced, and there was a very preliminary hearing in June 2019, which was effectively a half day setting out likely future work streams. In August 2019, the state lifted confidentiality obligations in relation to survivors. What that means is that the state has said that where they have entered into settlements with people that included confidentiality clauses, then the survivors who are party to those agreements can come forward and give evidence to the commission. This is also something that the Anglican Church at the provincial level, not all institutions, because there's a number of different institutions, but as a matter of principle, the Anglican Church at the provincial level has said it asks for confidentiality obligations to be lifted so that survivors can speak freely to the commission. We had a procedural hearing last August, and then um, nearly a year ago now was what was called the first contextual hearing, uh, where the commission heard um, in general terms about issues of abuse, and also in very general terms um, about issues of redress and policies and institutions. In March 2020, we had the first Section 20 notices issued. Um, this was quite a significant moment, and it was significant for two reasons. Uh, the first was they issued them two days after we went into lockdown, which uh, obviously caused something of a kerfuffle. Uh, but the Commission, in fact, was very pragmatic about it. They said they wanted to continue their work, but they acknowledged that when it came to finding documents, people could not go into schools or other institutions to get them. Therefore, that issue would be dealt with later. So while it perhaps came as a bit of a shock to people that under lockdown, under level four, um, the Commission was carrying on with its work, um, they were certainly very pragmatic and accommodated uh, the practical realities that we all faced at that time. Um, the issues, the other reason this was significant is that the Section 20 gives the Commission a very broad power to ask for documentation and information. So we've now had two very broad um, and this is not just the Anglican Church, the other churches have as well that are involved, two very broad notices have been issued, effectively requiring the provision of information relating to claims of abuse, as well as information relating to people who were at the various institutions, so i.e. pupils and the demographic um, sort of spread of pupils at various schools and care homes. So it was a very substantial job. The volume of documentation that's gone to the Commission runs to well over 10,000 pages, uh, just to give you an idea. And that's just from the perspective of, of the people that um, I act for, as opposed to anyone else. So it gives you an idea of the scale of what the Commission is looking at. Because the Commission, as I said earlier, has in fact looked beyond 1999, and it has asked for information up to 2020. So it's trying to capture the history over a 70-year period, a very significant exercise. So that's the past. 
what's going on at the moment. Um, at the moment, the Commission, as I've said, is currently doing a hearing into redress for state institutions. There's two phases to that. Phase one, which is focused on the evidence of survivors, and then phase two, which will occur uh, in a few weeks' time, where the state itself will give its evidence. Uh, in November and December, three weeks have been set aside for a hearing into redress for faith-based institutions. That hearing is focused again on the evidence of survivors. March 2021 will see the phase two hearing for faith-based institutions, which again will focus on the evidence of the institutions themselves as to how they handled claims and what policies and procedures they have in place for giving redress, as well as for dealing with disciplinary complaints. Because of course, we, we like to, um, in the way in which we describe it now, talk about when you have claims of abuse, you actually have two things. You have a claim and a complaint. So you have a potential claim for compensation or redress, and you also have a complaint, which effectively is a disciplinary matter about an individual that also needs to be dealt with. In December 2020, um, just after Christmas, there is meant to be an interim report to the government uh, on the inquiry's work to date, uh, key themes, common issues, as well as interim findings and recommendations. If that report is provided, and it may well be extended, then it is highly likely that it will be a pretty thin report um, given the delays that have occurred to date. Likewise, in January 2023, a final report will be issued. Um, it's likely that that date will be extended as well, and I gave the example earlier of the position in Australia where it was some three to five years um, beyond the originally anticipated date before the work of that commission wrapped up. So we have um, issues of uh, private sessions. Sorry, this says... Um, redress hearing on the screen for some reason, but it should say private sessions. Um, and private sessions are about where survivors can share their experiences of abuse. Generally speaking, one commissioner will meet with a survivor at a private session, and they will listen and help survivors talk about their experiences and memories. The sessions are recorded, they have provision for pastoral support, they allow for support people to attend, and it is expected to be a non-lawyer process, um, which is a good thing. Information from private sessions can be used in a number of ways. They might be included in research reports, used to identify topics, and I'll come back to this in a moment, for the inquiry to look at. Survivors might be asked to participate in a public hearing, such as by giving evidence, um, or they may disclose information to the police if there's a serious risk of harm to people. So the private sessions have been going on over the past two years, and a lot of the evidence that has been brought forward in the state hearing to date and will likely be brought forward for the faith-based hearing will come from people who have engaged in private sessions with the Commission. So this is an important part of the Commission's work. Um, two things about this. The first is the Commission is in fact very aware of the fact it's dealing with people's reputations. So when it has a private session with somebody and that person says, person A abused me, the Commission's ability to identify person A is constrained by its own um, practice notices. So the Commission in its work has issued a number of practice notices on things such as confidentiality and privacy, as well as more mundane matters such as how you provide them with documents on a USB stick. Um, so they're very much aware that there are difficult issues here because simply because somebody says it happened doesn't mean it did which therefore means you have to be very careful of the reputations of those who in some ways might be accused of abuse. So the Commission has effectively blanket confidentiality orders on a whole lot of material for that very reason. Uh, so while for some it may not go far enough, the Commission in fact is, is very aware of issues of reputation and the need for confidentiality. It is of course also important for those who have been abused 
um, who may not be want to be subject to the full scrutiny of public attention, which is people. The other important point I just want to pick up on is topics for the inquiry to investigate further and how the private sessions feed into that. Um, the Commission has started with a topic in terms of its work stream, and that topic is redress. That is a very broad topic, but we also know that the Commission has decided it wants to look into other topics. Now, we don't know quite what they all will be. We know that there is a Catholic school in Christchurch that is going to be subject, sorry, Catholic care home in Christchurch that is going to be subject to a particular hearing. We think it highly likely that the Commission will ask to look into certain schools within the Anglican network. It is highly likely they will look to ask into certain um, care homes as well. And it's entirely possible that they might, for example, just say they want to look at boarding schools for boys generally. We don't quite know because obviously the Commission lets us know once they make decisions. So when we talk about topics, those are the sorts of topics that we're talking about that the Commission will ultimately have hearings on. And we'll talk about the Australian example shortly um, to give you a better idea of that. Um, we then for the public, sorry, this is actually about the redress sessions um, instead of the uh, public sessions or the private sessions, so the slides got mixed up. So with the private, with the redress hearing that's on at the moment, as I said, we've got the, um, for faith-based institutions, we have 23 November until 11 December for a hearing date, uh, which will be very much focused on the experience of survivor witnesses. And then we have phase two from 22 March next year. The precise structure of the phases is still unknown as we're still going through an evidence exchange process with the commission. Uh, but these will be uh, interesting hearings that will almost um, certainly provide quite a lot of context to people, both for the general approach of the Commission, but also as an idea of, of exactly how it is on the whole that institutions have been approaching uh, these issues, um, and particularly these issues of complaints and claims. And we'll talk about that in a bit more detail shortly. So these sessions, of course, are public hearings. Um, the Commission is holding public hearings because they are issues of importance to New Zealand and the public needs to understand the process. But more than that, the public hearings are meant to ensure that you have independent, unbiased findings and recommendations based on principles of fairness and natural justice. So it comes back to this issue of private hearings that I spoke about earlier. So when it comes to the private sessions, of course, the Commission is not able to make findings based just on those because those affected have to be able to give their own evidence and own submissions. Um, so that's why we have these public hearings. However, they're quite different from court hearings. The Commission follows what's called an inquisitorial approach. So rather than having um, a classic one party argue, second party argue, and a bit of a um, nowhere near a sort of Trump-Biden debate, uh, you'll all be pleased to know, uh, but certainly a little bit of argy-bargy in a contest of ideas and evidence, the Commission is the one that is in control. So it's not two parties presenting cases, it is the Commission asking questions of people to try and find out what the truth is. The hearings will include both evidence. So that means lay evidence about what happened, the facts, the policies, and obviously evidence from survivors. And then there's expert evidence on matters as diverse as the approach to redress to the question of, which was in the contextual hearing, of why it is, this was an Australian expert, why it is that the abuse seemed to be more prevalent within particular churches and their institutions. Um, so there will be a mixture of because there are a number of people who have studied issues relating to abuse across the world in quite a lot of detail. And in fact, within New Zealand, um, there is uh, Dr. Stephen Winter, who is based at the University of Auckland, 
who was one of the two or three leading experts on the issue of redress for historic claims of abuse. He's done a lot of comparative research into, into other countries, such as the system in Canada, Northern Ireland, Queensland, uh, Victoria as well. Um, just to give you an idea of the scope of people, the number of countries and provinces that have gone through exactly what we are going through now. So that's just a bit of a summary on public hearings. So in terms of the government response, what is it that the government can do uh, in relation uh, to the work of the Commission? So the Commission can issue interim reports and recommendations at any time. It is unlikely to do so unless it was a particularly pressing or significant issue. So let's be clear, while it can do that, it does not necessarily mean that it will. The government gets reports and recommendations. It wants to in a transparent, coordinated and timely way. And it has indicated that it wants to respond in real time to issues that are raised. And there are six principles that will underline any government response. Manaitanga, uh, treating people with humanity, compassion and fairness. Openness, so not being defensive, being honest and sincere and open to considering how we can do things better. Transparency. Sharing information, including the reasons behind actions. Uh, learning, so active listening and learning from the commissioner means um, at the age together to make sure activities are aligned. And also, of course, meeting obligations under Te Tauliti, um, and honouring the principles of the treaty and building a Maori Crown relationship. So those are the six principles that the government will adopt to its response. In a sense, um, these six principles are what any institution engaged in the work of the Commission should be adopting. Uh, you will lose a lot through defensiveness. Uh, there is no point trying to defend the indefensible uh, or, or to excuse any, everything that happened in the past. That does not mean all institutions or everybody is fully culpable for everything that is alleged. Nor does it mean that we shouldn't look into some difficult issues of um, is there credibility to what has been said, and even issues such as how exactly do we address redress given the ACC system. But uh, having said all of that, these principles are very important ones, particularly manaakitanga, openness, transparency, uh, learning, and the principles around uh, the treaty principles as well. So that's the government response. So I'll turn now on to learnings from Australia, just to provide a bit of context, because this information is, is very, um, very interesting and personal. And I'll focus particularly on how the Commission engaged with faith with Anglican institutions and Anglican schools. So the Australian Commission um, held formal public hearings to examine evidence about child sexual abuse. So critical point is this was only about child sex abuse. It was not about abuse in a more general sense that our commissioners. The commission conducted 57 case studies, which is quite significant if you think about it. 57 case studies. Uh, School-related case studies included the Grafton Anglican Diocese, a Perth Independent School, Hutchins School Tasmania, Knox Grammar School, Geelong Grammar School, Brisbane Grammar School in St Paul's, uh, General One on problematic behaviour in schools, uh, looking particularly at Trinity Grammar Sydney and the King's School in Parramatta, as well as the nature, cause and impact of child sex abuse. So these were the case studies that just related to schools, um, as opposed to say, there were other case studies that related to, for example, care homes and other studies that related to churches um, in the kind of really simple sense as well. Um, what did we actually learn from this process? 
Almost one in three of the survivors, so just over 2,100 people, said that they were sexually abused within a school setting. So a, a pretty significant percentage. 71.8% of those were abused in religious schools as opposed to non-religious schools. There were over a thousand schools where abuse was stated to have occurred, of which 75, 76% basically were independent and 25, 24% were state. A disproportionate number of survivors were sexually abused in boarding schools and the average age of the complainants at the time of the first incident of sexual abuse was 11 years old and this did not vary for the gender of the complainant. So whether you were male or female, if you were abused, the average first age was that age of 11. So this is um, really pretty, pretty stark in terms of the numbers. What we know as well, because I've done these figures for the Anglican Church, is that there were around 1,200 cases of abuse reported that related to Anglican institutions across Australia. Um, a pretty substantial number. Uh, within Perth, the number was considerably higher. Um, and I've come to talk about the costs to the Diocese of Perth as an example of, of time-consuming and expensive this process can be. Um, so we certainly know that schools and religious schools and religious institutions had a significant problem. Um, there's probably two observations to make. The first is, Formerly, the time frame in Australia was a bit longer than the New Zealand time frame, although now the commissioners look in 1999, that's unlikely to be quite as true anymore. But to start with, the time frame was a bit longer. Um, the other thing, of course, is Australia's population is much ours. But I did a, I did a rough calculation, and if there were 1,200 claims of um, sexual abuse uh, in relation to Australian Anglican entities. I thought you would probably end up in New Zealand with somewhere between three and 400 claims of sexual abuse. Um, I actually don't believe we do have that many based on the information I have seen to date, which is, which is reassuring and probably speaks to some cultural differences between the two countries more than anything else. But again, you know, that, that's not a small number uh, by any stretch. So it highlights, as we know from the state evidence so far, that this uh, sort of conduct did go on within our institutions and it is very important that it is properly addressed, both in terms of ensuring, also doing justice to those um, subject to abuse. So the Commission in Australia identified a number of failings um, in relation to schools, but they said actually the failings were generally common across all institutions. But there were some particular features and risks of the school environment. The first was there was a reluctance to act on disclosures and complaints, uh, not just about considerations of reputation, uh, but often it was, you know, well, we, we'd better to just move this person on because we don't want this coming out and harming the school, which feeds straight into the next one. There was a feeling that the school was bigger than the children and the school as an institution had to be protected more than the children. There were inadequate complaint handling processes, both in terms of investigation and disciplinary action. And on that point, I can tell you right now from what I have seen that the inadequacy of complaint handling processes continues to today in the sense that even, you know, particularly if the person who's complained about currently works at the school, and lawyers are largely responsible for this, so I'll acknowledge that up front. You know, if you have a complaint of abuse or some inappropriate behaviour, while now there was, from the early 90s on, there's compulsory reporting to the Education Council, there is still a tendency on the part of schools to settle such claims 
via a negotiated outcome to avoid the legal costs involved of a full process. But if it's serious conduct, you really need a full independent process. Otherwise, you are never actually resolving the complaint in a proper manner. And so this issue of an adequacy, back then it was about confusion over who gets to handle complaints, where it goes to, and a lot of, um, a lot of kind of old boys club stuff going on, to be frank, of people protecting each other. Now, it tends to be about a reluctance to see the process all the way through to its conclusion. But the thing we know about these sorts of claims and the proper handling of them is that full, rigorous, independent investigations are always best. They're better for the person who is complained about, they're better for the complainant, and they're better for the institution. The other failings that were identified um, was the institutional culture of schools. Often there was a culture of obedience to authority. So first, uh, you wouldn't necessarily complain about your teacher. Uh, second, um, if the headmaster said, nothing's going to be done about this, then that was what happened. And there was a you know, general degree of deference to authority, probably to too great an extent. Poor governance structures were also to blame, uh, and also a lack of children participation and empowerment. There was a discouragement from complaining, uh, particularly within some of the more rigorous boarding schools, uh, which I'm sure many people can imagine. In terms of independent schools, they identified, the Commission identified particular factors that increased the risk of sex abuse and prevented disclosure, reputation and financial interests. Um, so this, as I said earlier, this is where the rubber hits the road for advancement officers in a sense, because you know, reputation and financial interests is what they're about, and these sorts of complaints and the handling of them have an adverse effect on all of that, and often that's what was happening. Um, Hypermasculine and hierarchical cultures were blamed, in particular homophobia. So there was a perception that if you admitted that you had been abused, that you would somehow be criticised. There was a sense of being part of a superior and privileged institution as well. Uh, there was an unquestioning selection of ex-students for employment in some schools. Old Boys Club, as I said earlier, he's a jolly good chap, we'll have him. Uh, and you also had long-serving principals often in governance structures with little or no accountability or visibility in the area of student well-being and safety. So we have the general failings and then we have the very particular ones, many of which I'm sure to a lot of you, um, if you look back at, at the history of schools, will ring very true, but probably less true today, um, we hope. So survivors of school-based abuse in Australia said they felt unable to speak about abuse for a number of reasons. They said they, there was the fear of not being believed because of the status of the perpetrator. In some cases, if they did it, it simply led to more abuse. abuse. They were worried about the impact on their family, and there was obviously a culture of retribution against dobbers or snitches that existed in some schools. Uh, as well, there was often in relation to uh, schools with culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, or children from diverse backgrounds, um, there was issues of racism and cultural isolation within the school, and disabled students were often not included in programs on respectful sexual relationships. So there was, in fact, discrimination against disabled students to start with, which meant they probably, in many ways, didn't have knowledge, was the finding of the Commission, of what was and wasn't appropriate, because they weren't given the education that others were given. And then, of course, there were issues of greater cultural safety, and a recommendation from the Commission that you needed greater cultural safety within building schools in particular uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. A very live issue with Māori Pacifica. As I mentioned earlier, I think New Zealand will have an issue with the issue of cultural oppression within our um, state-based and faith-based institutions for a substantial portion of our history and exactly the impact that that will have had 
of people who had to go through that experience. So what did the Commission in Australia say about making schools safe? Um, it said you need to increase knowledge and build school skills to reduce the health, to reduce the risk of sexual abuse or harm, and it recommended mandatory classes on respectful relationships and sexuality. It said you need a better regulation and monitoring of boarding hostels. You need independent oversight of institutional complaints. They recommended a reportable conduct scheme within Australia. So in a sense, kind of similar to what the Education Council does through the compulsory reporting aspect, um, but in fact, it was a, it was a bit of a, a broader scheme as well, because it could cover other staff. So again, the Commission recognised what I said earlier, which is that independent oversight of complaints is absolutely critical. It's critical to the integrity of the process. It's critical to your reputation. And then, of course, there was an important role for teachers who need upskilling in this area was the feeling of the Commission and that issue of cultural safety identified earlier. So um, we'll just talk a little bit about costs because I said I could talk about the Diocese of Perth because um, this is relatively public knowledge. Responding to the Royal Commission, and I can tell you right now, this is um, some of this bears true with New Zealand. Um, Australia had four and a half years of working within the context of the Commission from when they were first contacted to the conclusion. There was uncertainty as to when a notice to produce might be served. So a notice to produce is a Section 20 notice in New Zealand. So we know that's true here. When I got the phone call that a Section 20 notice was going to be issued within a day and we were in Level 4, it was pretty unexpected. Um, which means you then, everybody, lawyers, uh, institutions, have to swing into action to respond. You don't know who's going to be called as a witness. You have control over your own witnesses. You don't know until they give you the evidence who the Commission has spoken to. This is a substantial diversion from usual business for principals, for board members, uh, for those involved in administration, because often you need extra staff to work through the files. I know at college we um, diverted to staff resources and are going through the files for quite a considerable period of time, a diversion away from usual business and at a cost. And considerable expense. The cost to the Diocese of Perth, which was just one party to um, this particular commission in Australia, was somewhere in the region of 600,000 Australian dollars. So a pretty substantial amount. And of course, they were not insured for that. And generally speaking, lots of people won't be insured for the work of this commission. So this has a real, this is a, if you are involved in it and the commission comes to you, there was a real financial burden from participation. So in terms of expected responses, I'll move on to that now, because we've had, we've had a bit of a, a clue as to, you know, there's two things going on here. There's the work of the Commission, and we have an understanding of where they are coming from in terms of how they will expect schools and institutions to respond to allegations of historic abuse. We will get that more formally after the redress hearings, but we have an idea now. And we also just know the kind of zeitgeist. So we know um, what was learned from Australia. We know the approach in other jurisdictions overseas, such as Canada. And we can also know, um, not to be cynical, but to acknowledge the role media plays in this, we can know what it is the media would likely criticise if you ran a process and had a complaint of historic abuse. So the first thing is the Commission will expect schools to have a policy in place. So if you're an institution and you don't have an historic abuse policy in place, or a policy for dealing with such claims, complaints even today, then you should get one. Um, the focus for the Commission in terms of redress will be what policies and procedures are best, and also what compensation or tangible support, as I called it, if any, should be paid. This is less about the discipline of individuals, that's an employment process that you go through. 
It's about institutional culpability and responsibility. Any process and any response must acknowledge the wrong done. Investigations must be robust and fair and complaints must be dealt with in a timely manner. The one problem I have observed, and I know that um, uh, certainly one lawyer for complainants would say this, is that where people don't have formal processes that are the responsibility of named individuals, it can take years before a complaint gets resolved. That's a product of two things. The complaint comes in, you spend a while talking about who's going to handle it. You have to seek approval from a board or a headmaster or whatever to make contact again. That takes a number of months. You go into files, et cetera, et cetera. And it's never, this stuff is, is often put down the list because it isn't a day-to-day -day operational matter. It's an ongoing issue in a broader context. So the end result is it's months until you go back to them. Uh, and then often the survivors themselves are not in good spaces, so they will step in and out of the process. And before you know it, it's five years, and I know one case where it's five years since the first contact and the claim is still unresolved. That delay itself uh, is, is not good for the survivor uh, and does not reflect well on the institution. Uh, when you're dealing with complaints as well, particularly within a Maori context, you do need to consider uh, you know, issues such as mana, tapu, utu, uh, and kaiati. Uh, kaitiakitanga uh, must also be considered and addressed. Um, importantly, of course, that when you're dealing with these complaints, this is a really important principle and it's one the Commission has adopted. You're not looking to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt as you do in a criminal context. So you can't overemphasize inaccuracies and discrepancies. And often what happens overseas is that you simply look to the basics. Was the complainant at the institution when they say, Yes. Was the perpetrator at the institution when they say? Yes. Is there other evidence that suggests this might have happened? Yes. Therefore, the claim is generally accepted. Now, of course, there's, there's a critical point to make, and I said this area is often about balancing principles. So we have here this principle of accepting the claims without applying them a too high standard to it. But of course, when you do so, you do end up in a position where you are effectively saying somebody may have done something quite bad and the reputation of that person is affected. That needs to be handled sensitively. And often that's done by the institution acknowledging in a broad sense that something happened, but without necessarily accepting the specifics of who did it, particularly if there's some doubt over that aspect. But this is, as I said, these are sometimes tricky waters to navigate. And that is certainly one of the trickier issues. And I know that in a strictly legal approach, we would say, well, you need really good evidence to establish it. But we are also not in a position where because of the time frames, that evidence can fairly be arrived at. That means the complainant may not receive um, the recognition they deserve, but at the same time, the perpetrator's reputation might be damaged. So this is an issue that obviously needs careful consideration whenever complaints come in, but it is something that your policy will simply have to try and accommodate. And again, you accommodate it within the context of the particular complaint. So I mentioned before tangible support, which is what this slide is actually about. So what are the expectations around tangible support um, when complaints come in? So uh, there's a few things. This raises some really complicated issues around the role of ACC. So we have ACC in New Zealand, and ACC generally covers sexual abuse, it's a physical injury. So people have received a form of compensation already. So, for example, in, within the Irish um, compensation system, the most serious claims of abuse can receive compensation of up to a quarter of a million euros, a really substantial sum of money. But 
But of course, Ireland doesn't have an ACC system where a lot of the costs of counselling and so on are already covered by the state. So you say, well, in New Zealand, the starting point is in fact often a lot lower because we have to recognise ACC. But of course, in theory, ACC provides an absolute bar to people suing. So if I was abused when I was at school, I could only sue the school for what we call exemplary damages at law. And the amount I could get in exemplary damages would be quite low, less, well less than 100,000. And I would have to establish that the school, not necessarily the, the person concerned who abused me, but the school itself acted in a reprehensible manner. So that is a very tricky issue. But in saying that, when it comes to this issue of payments of tangible support, what we know is that is the New Zealand government ran a process from around 2010 to 2015, where effectively people within state-based institutions could come forward, and then they would get paid out based on a, effectively a scale, based on the seriousness of the abuse and the seriousness of the consequences. The vast majority of claims were at the lower end, and most claims were resolved for a cost of somewhere around 20,000 New Zealand dollars. Now, let's compare that with what we know the Crown itself said was the cost, the cost of an average case. So when somebody sued them in relation to historic abuse, the average cost to the Crown was 650,000 New Zealand dollars. So think about that for a moment. You're paying somebody who probably deserves it, a sum of tangible support of 20,000 or so, compared to a potential cost of 650. So from a purely economic sense and in a justice sense of allowing people to move on with their lives, you can see why notwithstanding the role of ACC, institutions are frequently within New Zealand providing tangible support in the sense of compensation payments, payments for counselling, or payments on behalf of people to achieve certain outcomes. I know of one case where somebody wants uh, effectively something purchased to a system and starting a business. So this is all, um, as you can see, these are tricky areas, but there's good practical reasons why you would provide tangible support. But with the tangible support, you then have questions of paternalism, right? Because you can't take too much control. You can't say, well, you can't be patronising to people whose lives have been severely disrupted by abuse and say, well, we won't give you the money direct because you're going to blow it on booze, um, you know, which is often a, a, an approach that some people want to take because it's not in the person's best interests. You've also got to recognise that the survivor is an autonomous individual who has the right to ask for the tangible support to be used in a way that best suits them. Um, so there, there are some really serious and quite um, delicate issues around providing tangible support. There is also a question of what conduct qualifies, and this is very important in the context of New Zealand schools. So within the Irish system, for example, and Canada as well, for certain institutions, if you went to that institution between 1960 and 1980, you received automatically a sum of money because the view taken was that abuse within that institution and its overall approach to education and care was so bad that simply by, by being there, you were probably subjected to some form of abuse and therefore you can get a payment. New Zealand, I don't think, is like that at all, and I would be surprised if we have institutions that are quite at that level, at least within the faith-based sector. It may well be that some of the state institutions are different, but I do not know. But you then have within schools what conduct qualifies. Um, is overly rigorous corporal punishment, which of course was around until the late 80s, is that problematic? If the conduct was perfectly legal at the time, is it in fact problematic and something for which tangible support should be given and do we recognise it as abuse?
So that is, you know, as I said, a, a very delicate question, and it, it's quite a tricky one as well. And the way in which institutions um, that I act for are currently uh, dealing with this issue is we've looked at a lot of overseas evidence and overseas approaches. Uh, we've looked at what we understand survivors um, are after and what works best for them. And we've also looked at what other faith-based um, or religious groups are doing. And we're looking at effectively a matrix of um, kind of tangible support amounts. So you have uh, the first box is where the abuse was low level and the consequences were low level. You then have box two where the abuse is low level, the consequences are high or severe. Box three is high level abuse um, and the consequences are mild or low. And then we have, and you have to be careful about using high and mild in those words, but sometimes there's no other words we can use. And then of course you have high level abuse, you know, really serious stuff combined with severe consequences in box four for which the most tangible support will be given. And that seems to be the approach that a lot of, a lot of people are adopting. It seems to be quite common in terms of what survivors themselves are after as well. So it is, um, in terms of potential approaches, uh, this sort of um, matrix, as we call it, is where people seem to be coalescing. The critical point, though, is that, as I said earlier, there's always a trade-off. There's a trade-off between recognising a claim in a victim-sensitive way and risks to people's reputations. There's a trade-off between paying money too easily and spending too much on lawyers. There's also going to be a trade-off between what conduct you allow into a matrix and what public criticism you are willing to take as well. So a few words, um, having finished that part, on participation and best approach. Um, again, I said earlier, really, the government's principles are a good way to think about the Commission if it comes to you. Um, but the government's expectation and the Commission's expectation is that everybody cooperates with the inquiry. You have a legal responsibility to do so. You need to ensure a safe and secure environment for the inquiry to do its work. Consider confidentiality. The Commission itself wants to ensure that people participating are not disadvantaged or prejudiced and also that those participating have the necessary support, particularly pastoral support and care. So where exactly is all this heading, um, you might well want to ask me. It is a little hard to say. I think, as I said, there seems to be a general trend in relation to redress and issues of claims and complaints, which is the Commission will expect policies, they'll expect them to be independent, they'll expect them, them to be survivor-focused, but also acknowledging potential impacts on reputations. There seems to be a general trend, as far as we can tell, towards some form of matrix system for tangible support. And there seems to be a lot of recognition that in a lot of cases, tangible support should be provided. But as I recognised earlier, there is, of course, uh, there are difficulties on the edge of some of this, um, which is problematic. Um, it's clear you would, have, you would have heard that there was a significant problem in some state institutions. Um, when I listen to Checkpoint at night and you hear the evidence presented that day, some of it is very harrowing, and some of the evidence I have read in the faith-based context is also harrowing. So, you know, we do have a problem within New Zealand. It may not be as bad as Australia or Canada or Ireland, but it is still a problem. Even if policies and culture have improved, as I said earlier, there is still room for improvement. You know, there is this issue of are all the institution's policies um, really in the best place to deal with complaints? The Commission is unlikely to accept legalistic approaches to issues. That's a really important point. People who rely on legal defences and legal strategies are likely to come a cropper. 
one thing that is very unclear is whether we will end up with a formal national system of redress. That has often happened overseas um, because you also have a tension here and that certainly for some institutions, even within New Zealand potentially, if you pay out um, at really substantial levels to victims, you bankrupt the institution when in fact lots of them are carrying on providing good social services. This was acknowledged in Ireland, for example, where if the Irish Catholic Church had had to pay out all of its claims, it would have been bankrupt many times over. So it set up an agreed system with the government that was legislated for where there was effectively a framework matrix of the sort we spoke about, and the Roman Catholic Church paid in a set amount of money, and then the government effectively picked up everything else. It's not clear whether the scale of the problem in New Zealand will require that sort of solution, because those things are also heavily bureaucratic, which themselves cost money. So that's the important thing as well. Um, but uh, we just don't know. So we will find out a lot, I think, through the redress hearings and particularly the institutional responses to them, where the Commission's thinking is going. So in terms of those of you who work in advancement offices, as I said, this will have an impact in two ways. The first is the financial impact. Um, you know, when schools have to pay out money, either in relation to claims or in relation to commission participation, it impacts the good operation of the school. So good work from development officers and advancement officers always helps. But it is about being alive to this issue because it will impact your work. Um, people who have been abused or who take a view as to the response of a school are unlikely to support the school which is why it's in everyone's interest that these issues are very much addressed and in a transparent, independent and proper way, acknowledging very fully and fairly what has gone on, but while also acknowledging some of those difficult issues that I've touched on. So that um, is the end of uh, certainly my formal slides. I'm happy to take any questions that people might have. Thank you, Jeremy, very much. Um, and, and there may be some questions that will come through on the chat. Um, but uh, just um, thinking back to the advancement office, um, could you step us through, you know, what might happen if the commission did contact the school uh, because a survivor had come forward? What, what would be the likely sort of chain and... Of, of responses in, in the best practice, in the best possible way that, that a school could respond? So it, it, it kind of, in a sense it depends, Naomi, on, on um, what it is the Commission is asking of um, the school, but usually with the Section 20 notice they come and they say, give us all of your files relating to abuse. So any file you have where there's a sniff of abuse, please hand it over. Um, in which case the, the best institutional response is to do that and to do it in a very quick, in terms of the commission timeframes. So that's quite an extensive job because often the stuff wasn't written down. Um, often if it was, it's in board minutes. So you have to trawl through all the board minutes. You've got to go through all the personnel files. You've got to go through every student file in effect um, to see what you can come up with. So that, that's, the, that's the first thing. Um, if the commission does say, let's say on a really big scale, the commission said, right, next week we're gonna have, or next year we're gonna have a week long hearing on this particular school. What's the best thing the school can do? The best thing the school can do is front up and acknowledge where things went wrong. So don't go in aggressively and question the authority of the commission. And I know one or two schools were thinking of doing that at one point. Uh, don't go in and do that because the commission has jurisdiction. It, it's a simple legal point, you won't get anywhere. Don't cross-examine witnesses in an aggressive way to find out whether or not what they say happened. 
um, you're not going to be able to establish it one way or another and the commission isn't interested and you will look defensive. Don't pretend it didn't happen and be very much open to whatever the commission's guidance is for you. That, that's always the best approach. That's, that's not to say we should be walkovers because the commission may well get stuff wrong and they have to date. But what we have found with the commission is that rather than going at them and saying, you're completely wrong, this is outrageous, you just go to them and say, thanks for this. Um, actually, we have a perspective on this, which is this, have you thought about it? And on at least two or three occasions so far, they've changed their thinking, their course slightly in response to that sort of dialogue. So it's very much about having an open and honest dialogue with the commission, because otherwise you will highly likely be criticised by the commission and highly likely be criticised um, by the commission and the con and if they're criticised by the commission, you're going to be criticised in the media. Uh, the other thing to bear in mind, of course, from the advancement perspective, is that um, it may well be that some of the people who are survivors themselves or who are making claims against people, because there's a bit of student-student um, abuse coming up that we've seen, um, they may well be people who are in touch with the advancement office. And then, of course, we, you, you, know, you will ultimately have difficult issues to deal with there in terms of um, the sensitivity of those issues and how you deal with them. And on the bigger scale, you know, you may have questions of, is it appropriate, for example, that we have a former headmaster still hanging on the wall or a former house, house named after somebody who is now the subject of abuse allegations? Um, and that's something that I know Naomi College House has struggled with in a pretty well-publicised case. And you can see how divisive that sort of thing can be within a community. Um, so those are the sorts of issues that... that might end up arising for an advancement off. Yeah. Um, one other uh, question, Jeremy, is um, a, a situation like this, when you are trying um, to be as compassionate and empathetic as possible and to be as transparent about the process as possible, um, how would you see the communications to, you know, a school's internal and external community? You know, uh, to what extent do you share what's what's going on? Well, I, I think a number of schools. So, so Dilworth, I think, has been a very good example of this, right? So a, a year ago, they went out to their community and said, we know this has been a problem. Um, we've set up a particular listening service in relation to it. We invite people to come forward. And then they've spoken really about the principles of their response to it. Um, I, I think the best way to do it is always talk about principles. So say we're open to this. Um, we may, you know, we think it may have happened. Even if you don't know it happened, say we don't know. Um, so be honest, be open, but talk about the principles. Don't talk about the specifics because it's the privacy concern. So if stuff's public in the past, as it has been in a number of cases, that's one thing. But in a lot of cases, it hasn't been public and you don't want to... Um, effectively re-traumatise survivors by having their names suddenly pop up without their permission or something like that. You very much, I think, just want to focus and talk about this, the principles that you're on rather than any specific cases. Yeah. yeah. And again, I think if the, commission, if the commission came to your school and said, you're up next year, I would be proactively communicating that to the community. Yeah. And say this, this will be our intended approach to the, the work of this commission. And I'd just like to say a, a very big thank you to uh, Jeremy on behalf of our New Zealand members. You know, thank you for your time today, for stepping us, 
um, through this whole process and, um, and giving us just such a greater understanding of the inquiry. Um, there may be some questions that we can forward to you afterwards and that our members may have, um, but just thank you very much again for your time today. It's been wonderful. Thank you.